Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with criminologist Lee Miller. Lee Miller has written a number of books on murder, on uh, serial killers and psychopaths and uh, psychotics and you know all sorts of really, really uh, intense stuff. He's also a musician and a historian, and he's the host of the popular podcast, um, on murder, uh, which is a very, very, <laughs> very intense podcast. Um, so today, what we're going to be talking with him about is not so much psychopaths and serial killers and uh, psychotics. We're going to be talking with him about pe- completely normal people who can be radicalized, whether it be somebody getting radicalized by ISIS online or whether it be a soldier going to Vietnam Uh, completely normal people who can be, for one reason or another, turned into killers. It's uh, not the the most hopeful and and cheery episode, but I think think you'll find it interesting. But before that, um, a couple of things. Uh, First of all, uh, as, as always, we could use your support. There's a number of ways that you can support us. The most tangible and obvious way is to become a Patreon supporter of the podcast. You can do that by going to www.patreon.com slash likefillpodcast. It's very, very helpful. If you think long-form discussions like we do that are so charitable and it's trying to get away from gotcha journalism and from little sound bites back and forth. If you think long discussions about important issues are something that you value, well then you know, support it. Right? And that's a great way to support it. You can also support the podcast by sharing the episodes in social media. That's very, very helpful by leaving reviews. Uh, the more reviews, especially positive reviews that you leave of our podcast, that works the algorithms in our favor and brings the episodes to people's attention. So more potential listeners hear about it when you do that. Uh, so please do that. Um, in order to keep sort of track of what's going on with the podcast, about upcoming guests, uh, ways that you can ask questions in advance that we will then ask of guests there to keep in touch you should if you're on facebook join our facebook group you can just put in like phil and it will take you to our page immediately you can join that page you can follow us on twitter our twitter handle is at the like phil pod we are also on instagram now once again if you just put in like phil it'll take you um, to us so those are ways you can keep in touch with us. Today's episode is also brought to you by our um, advertisers, our sponsors. All right, so uh, the first of our sponsors is Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers individual lessons online, or if you happen to be in the Montreal area, he also offers lessons in groups or individually. Um, if you want to go $50,000 into debt and <laughs> like um, have all of your, your love for photo- photography killed, well, go to one of those uh, photography programs at a school. 
but if you actually just want a very practical education in how to take better pictures and how to edit them afterwards so that they look their absolute best, I recommend that you get in touch with um, Sebastian Furtado because his attitude towards photography is very much the attitude you would find from a sort of Italian Renaissance artisan that's teaching you how to be a very good sculptor or a very good painter. It's completely just focused on this is uh, a skill set and here's how you perfect that skill set. And he's and I've seen firsthand uh, people who've taken classes with him and they've sort of improved very dramatically in a short amount of time and working with them. So, you know, there's the, the old expression, right, that uh, people who can't do teach. I can't stand that impression, that expression, but I know there's, there, there's some truth to it for sure. But Sebastian is the exception. He's somebody who can both do and teach. His professional photography is fantastic and his teaching is also fantastic. Today's episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Good Mix is a kind of a, a mix of seeds and dried fruits and nuts. It's super healthy, very virtuous, uh, very paleo. Uh, there's a number of different ways to eat it. I happen to eat it with uh, yogurt in the morning. It's fantastic stuff. It's super healthy, uh, fills you for hours and hours and hours. Wonderful stuff. Uh, and if you go on their site or you buy their stuff on Amazon, um, if you put in uh, Likeville, is it Likeville 15? Yeah. If you put in the coupon code Likeville 15, you will get 15% off of your purchase. So make sure to do that. Today's episode is also brought to you by Elsa's. Elsa's is a fantastic restaurant bar in Plateau Montréal here in Montreal on Roy Street, just at the corner of Dubillion. It's a wonderful place. It's a place where locals go. This is not where the, you know, the drunk teenagers from Boston go and they're coming up to Montreal because they can't drink till 21 in Massachusetts and they can drink at 18 in, uh, in Montreal, in Quebec. Uh, there are bars that they go to and, you know, the locals avoid those bars as much as, much as possible. But if you want to go to a really nice place uh, where with a wonderful atmosphere, uh, you should check out Elsa's. It's a fantastic place. And make sure when you go to let them know that, uh, that we sent you, the Likeville podcast sent you. Today's episode is also brought to you by Café Lali and uh, Galerie des Arts. This is a mother-daughter uh, venture in St. Henry. It's a wonderful place. It's kind of, it's a combination art gallery slash cafe. And the daughter runs the cafe and the mother runs the art gallery. The coffee is very, very nice. The space is very bright and beautiful. It's on multiple floors and they've got a lot of fantastic art. So if you're in the St. Henry neighborhood, definitely check that place out. Uh, yes. So uh, today's episode, as I said, is brought to you by our sponsors as well as by our Patreon supporters. And without further ado, I give you my conversation about killing and murder with Lee Miller. 
All right, welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. I've ha- our guest today is criminologist, historian, musician, uh, and I'll say Lee Meller. He's a very interesting guy. He does a lot of different careers. He's done many, many things. He's also the host of the popular podcast, Murder Was the Case. And so today is, for the first time, we are interviewing another podcaster. <laughs> so uh, welcome to the podcast, Lee. Yeah, thanks, John. All right. Uh, so uh, we're going to be talking about all sorts of different things, I'm sure. But what I wanted to start off with, one of the main reasons why I was very excited to get you on the podcast is I know you've you've written a number of books about uh, mass murderers, serial killers, what used to be called spree killers before they got rid of that uh, that name. But we could talk about that. Yeah, too. no, we don't need to talk about the San Antonio <laughs> symposium. <laughs> symposium, yeah. But um, <laughs> so you've you've written a lot on on murder, and a lot of your stuff has been on on psychopaths and on psychotics, people who you know do crazy stuff, chop people's heads off, and talk to them, and all that. Yeah, but what I want to yeah, really, yeah. you know, crazy, crazy stuff. But what I want to talk to you about today, because this is what I find really disturbs me, is how completely normal people, people who are not psychopaths, people who are not um, psychotics, they have no history of mental health problems, they were not abused, they were not, you know, hurt in any way, um, and yet they do horrible things. I mean, now, I I mentioned uh, to you in anticipation of this podcast that I just recently finished listening to uh, the uh, New York Times podcast called Caliphate, which uh, Sebastian, the producer of the show, recommended. Thank you, Sebastian. But, uh, it's an absolutely fascinating look at ISIS. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that becomes clear when you listen to this podcast is that one of the main characters in the podcast, he is a regular kid who grows up in a loving home in Toronto. He's not picked on in school. He's not beaten at home. He has no history of mental health problems. He gets radicalized by ISIS online. He goes over um, and ends up like crossing over um, into Syria from from Turkey and uh, does all sorts of horrible things. He goes through an ISIS training camp. He cuts people's heads off. He engages in all sorts of kind of atrocities. And then eventually he just gets sick of it, runs away from uh, ISIS, makes his way back to Canada, ends up in Toronto, and he's going to university now. Yeah. Like, so (laughs) this is the vast majority of horrible atrocities that have happened in human history. And and I tell my students this, I teach a class, uh, which I know you came and gave a guest lecture in my class, my good and evil class. Yeah. And uh, years ago, but... um, the in that class, one thing I, I stress to the students again and again is that the vast majority of the horrible things that have happened in human history, those they happen because of completely normal people, right? Yes. So my question to you, because I'm not, I'm really not very clear on this. I know there's many theories. Zimbardo has all of his, but I'm not really very clear. How do you make a normal kid from the Toronto suburbs into a killer somebody who will cut somebody's head off slowly with uh, a dull knife so i think you know first of all we're assuming that he's quote unquote normal we'd have to kind of look deeper into this kid's life so you said you know he wasn't bullied at school but how did he socialize did he have 
genuine friends uh, because you can be a kid who's not bullied and still sort of sit there and not say anything and not be able to communicate with people properly. Like you see that in a lot of cases of mass murderers and such. So uh, was there any indication that he had any kind of social deficit? Well, definitely. Um, if I remember correctly from the podcast, they said that he was um, he was sort of introverted, kind of mm. kept to himself. Right. And so he did find online, he found a kind of community and a kind of friends friend network online that he was incapable of finding in real life. But yeah. the thing is, that applies to lots of introverts. It does. You know, it applies to probably, you know, they, the vast majority of the introverts I know think that the invention of the Internet is one of the most wonderful things ever because yeah. it allows them to sort of um, to find community and find voice in a way that they normally can't in a social situation where we're like hanging out like this. Yeah. So I don't think that's it seems to me like that's not a very satisfactory explanation, but. For sure, but there's always it's always a stew, right? It's never like there's this is the answer. It's a number of intersecting things. So we've established that he's not bullied, but he's also not prospering socially. Like, I mean, is he got a girlfriend? Um, I don't think so. No, right. I, I don't. I don't think that was mentioned. But right, and yeah. it's. I think it's amazing sometimes how we underplay factors like that. You know, do you have a girlfriend? Is like, do you have a mate? You know, you're going to pass your genes on. So your social strategy may be not getting you picked on. So you're not being singled out as being like, hey, don't fuck this guy or, you know. Uh, but at the same time, if that's the reality that you're living and you're sort of, for the lack of a better term, red-blooded male, right? That's going to gnaw at you. Hmm. Yeah. It could. I mean, but I mean, even if you take that book was Christopher Browning's book, Ordinary Men, yeah. which is all about the the men who worked in concentration camps and worked for the the Einsatzgruppen and stuff like that. And he is very, very careful to show how these people were not loners. They were family men. Mm -hmm. They were usually men that were kind of like about my age. They were kind of in their late 30s, early 40s, yeah. and they had big families. And so they got they got an exception. They didn't have to do military duty at the front and be soldiers, and they wanted to stay closer to their families, and so they were allowed to work in concentration camps yeah. and things like that. And so what he shows is that most of the people that did the really, really dirty work of the Nazi regime weren't even members of the Nazi party. They weren't anti-Semites. Mm -hmm. They weren't um, in any way, like, they weren't ideological. They weren't loners. They were, for the most part, you know, good fathers and husbands. And they did these horrible things. And so I'm, yeah. that really, really gives me the creeps when I hear that a normal person can be turned into a monster. It doesn't surprise me whatsoever, though. You know, the more I just look at what's going on in contemporary culture and just how many people are willing to remain silent on really important issues, you know, take your pick. You could just pull them out of the sky these days. And you know that they're leaning one way or the other, that you can't possibly be neutral on some of these things. And that this, the vast amount of people is like, well, I want to keep my job, you know, and so that's more important than standing up for like a, a, a right. So for me, my thing is free speech. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's you don't fuck with that. Then, then you cross into you get murdered zone, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not fucking around. That's that's at the core of 
this discourse and to the core of us being able to discuss anything political to get to to get to progress in the first place i mean the whole civil rights movement and such that came about you know through people exchanging freely being able to express themselves and so if you're silent on something like that like you and you're worried about your job like and i hate to say it because i don't want to be one of those people going around going like everyone's a nazi everyone's a nazi but nazis are enabled in a way aren't they Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, no, but okay. What you're talking about there, and I I agree with you. That's a like massive problem. You're talking what they talk about in yeah. social psychology is the bystander effect, right? Yeah. All the people who like sit back, and they they don't intervene. And actually, um, Jonathan Haidt, who we interviewed, he talked about this, and he said on college campuses on on things like the free speech yeah. issue. He said a big problem is all you need to have is seven students that want to like that will rip your head off if you say the wrong thing and if you have even if it's a very small number of students if the rest of the if the administration and the rest of the faculty and the rest of the student body are afraid of those students Mm. and you know sebastian we know we know one one of these students like this Mm. right here in montreal if everybody else is afraid of that student or those students those bullies can can actually change the dynamic a great deal. So, no, mm. that's absolutely correct. Yeah. You're talking about the bystander. I'm talking about a different thing. I'm talking yeah. about how do you make people not just sit on the fence and kind of stand back and not take stand. I'm talking about how do you take a totally normal person and you make them actually shed blood for the wrong side and in the wrong, like, how do you take somebody? Because that's... That is what I don't understand. And I think whoever can figure that out is, well, among other things, is going to have a very lucrative career because I know I've been I've been asked to participate a number of times in some uh, working groups here in Montreal. And they're trying to understand why have there been like a number of students, CEGEP students here in uh, Quebec in the last couple of years who've been radicalized online. And yeah. have been trying to go over. They were trying to go join ISIS. And people want to know how is this happening. Yeah. So, so, I I understand the example you use, but I think that it's a little bit apples and oranges because those uh, ordinary men, so to speak, who you know were not true died in the wall Nazis, but still executed people. They were living inside a society where national socialism was, you know, the norm, for lack of a better word. So there is a, a prescription coming down from them politically and socially at, at different levels that it's virtuous to do something like that it's, or it's your duty. Do you remember the whole Himmler thing? Like he, he didn't want them to kill passionately. He wanted to, it to be dispassionately. Yeah, his whole it, Kantian like justification yeah, 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 for yeah. it, yeah. It's almost like that scientific uh, thing, like make sure you're right in the passive voice because it's more objective and it's like, well, is it? No, but it's like, you know, this this idea that it must the killing must be done the right way and just just through ideology and and those sorts of arguments you know and and making it seem like a noble cause i think that's the way you do it and so the ability to make somebody kill an innocent person seem like a noble cause it, it seems like there's got to be some sort of ideology that has crept in there which allows them to rationalize the difference between that and the, the case that you're talking about is like I want to take that individual person first. And as I was doing sort of at the start, well, let's test like how, how good is his life? How, 
you know, what strains does he have going on? So another thing I was going to ask you, uh, what is the religious background of his family? Oh, they're like very sort of moderate, middle of the road uh, Sunni Muslims. Okay. Which are just, you know, it's like some, as far as I could tell, his parents are the equivalent in the Christian world of, uh, you know, Catholics that they they go to church on Easter and Christmas and that's about it, you know, but they're not like super religious. Used. Parents are not like yeah. very religious at all. And mm-hmm. they, uh, they were... You know, so his parents were actually horrified when they found out um, yeah. what, you know, what he had done. And they were they uh, he says in the podcast, he says his parents have still not uh, forgiven him for it. But w- one of the things that's also really fascinating, and this is another thing I wanted to ask you about, is you talk in your podcast and in your books very often about how um, a psychotics, they have they have an actually a delusional view of the world, right? And so, and you implicitly, you're saying that they are not, they're not seeing the world correctly the way that we do. So they might have like yeah. crazy rationalizations, but I, I definitely, I agree with you, but what is the difference between a psychotic who is living in their own world, in their own delusion and a group of people who collectively believe in the same delusion. The difference is uh, the politics of what's going back um, behind stage for the people who write the DSM. That's what it is. Uh, so, I mean, you're speaking right to me here. I wrote uh, a chapter for a book called Killing for Slender Man. It was one of the first published <laughs> academic yeah. uh, pieces I had. And I just, it started off where I just wanted to write about that Slenderman thing. I just thought it was cool, right? Uh, Can you just tell our listeners uh, that who are not familiar with that? Cause... Okay, so Slenderman uh, is essentially, in 2009, there was a contest on some forums. I believe there were the Something Awful forums. And they said, hey, let's have a creepy picture contest. And so that sounds like fun to me. I wish I was on that shit and not on Twitter, right? And so they start sending in <laughs> creepy pictures. And someone just does this masterful job. His name is, um, I think his last name ended up being Knudsen when, the, uh, when it, that all got revealed. Uh, he puts out this picture. They're old photographs. They look like from the early 80s or the 70s of children playing. And then in the background, you can see this lurking gangly tall um kind of faceless man with these long arms very willowy and so people liked it so the guy created some more and then other people started creating their own and they started doing blair witch style videos you know where look slender man popped up and uh they tell stories so then people's real experiences that they've had uh, they they start to some of them start to really think that they have seen Slenderman and that Slenderman is real, and you know, to to mostly harmless degrees. Like somebody who has a hallucination upon waking up and sees a tall guy by their bed. All of a sudden, now that they have a cultural thing to interpret it with, like oh, it was Slenderman. You know, everyone likes the attention of telling stories like that. But uh, these two girls in Wisconsin uh, completely. Uh, took it seriously enough where one of them became convinced that if they didn't sacrifice someone to Slender Man, that they were going to destroy their entire family. And 
so what they did is these two girls, one of them was later found to be schizophrenic. The other one you could say is delusional. Like, I don't know if you'd say it was a delusional disorder, but they're definitely delusional, you know, not in their right mind. And so they invite this friend over. I think, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 2013. And they have her over for a sleepover. Then the next day they say, let's go to the park. They go out to the park. They're walking in the park. The, uh, the two girls go, okay, let's do it now. Pull out a knife and they stab this girl, Peyton Lautner is her name. Yeah, they stab her 19 times and they just leave her in the woods to die. They then go out on a highway, I, th I think it's a highway, and to start walking towards this forest where they believe that Slenderman lives and now Slenderman is going to appear to them and he's going to welcome them into his mansion. And so, of course, when this happened, these girls were caught. Uh, there's a lot of issues about them, their age. They were young, so do you try them as adults or not? Questions of, of sanity and such. So it took a while to have this trial. And eventually, yeah, so they're, they're both uh, inside now. Um, what exactly it was, the result of it, I don't remember. Uh, but they were definitely found to be mentally ill, you know, one more severe, severely so than the other. And I'm reading this, and I'm just going, like, that sounds very close to, you know, ISIS or something like a, a, a jihadist, mm -hmm. right? And so I asked that same question when I was reading that, John. I'm like, okay, so they're nuts because they believe in Slenderman. But if I'm doing it for Allah or Jehovah or Shiva, or you know, then then it's okay. Yeah. Well, it's I, I guess it's it's the difference between like I I used to work in a, a drop-in center for people with yeah. uh, with mental health problems, people who um, had been in like the Douglas Hospital for a long time or in the Allen Memorial or something like that for a long time, and they had been um, they. You know, a lot of these people, they went in when they were 19 and they come out and they're like 40 and they don't know how to take care of. They're totally institutionalized. Yeah. It's like somebody who's been in prison for their yeah. whole life. So they uh, they would need all sorts of support, like just how do I cook? How do I do my laundry? How do I uh, pay my bills? You know, yeah. and, and also they would have really rough days where they would need like counseling and stuff. And I remember I, I worked there for a while and I would have people come in and they would have these elaborate delusions they would say there's a nuclear missile silo uh underground like cia site on nuns island and they do tests on people down there and they've got nukes and they've got all these things and they like and it was very very elaborate right yeah and that person uh was considered to be schizophrenic and sure. the person was um, psychotic and was having a rough and they needed to go back on their meds. Uh, that's very clear to us. Yeah. But I've had people, intensely religious people. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was a teenager, I went to a Pentecostal church and um, I was I was, you know, totally involved in this like Pentecostal church. And I think back now yeah. to stuff that people said in prayer meetings. And stuff that people said, it was every bit as insane yeah. as the <laughs> testing site under talking about demonic yeah. warfare and, you know, and just describing like all in elaborate detail. And yet all these people were completely functional members mm. of 
Montreal society, they had jobs. They were school teachers. They were mechanics. They were carpenters. They had they were small business owners. They had stores. They paid their mortgage or their rent every single month. They had, you know, their they were completely considered normal citizens, and yet they totally believed in things that were every bit as insane and paranoid and delusional as these schizophrenics that I was dealing with right. at uh, at Projet Pal later on on Wellington Street in Verdun. So um, it seems to me that the only difference is that uh, in the instance of somebody who's a psychotic, their delusion is like a private, it's yeah. a private delusion. And so maybe part of the reason that they're crazy and that they're so depressed and unhappy is because we're intensely social creatures and to have your own delusion it's like having a birthday party and nobody shows up but you well, right whereas the people yeah. in like a pentecostal church they have a whole community of people who say yeah i saw that demon too you know like yeah and so they feel <laughs> they have the sense of community right and they feel completely normal because all these people share my delusion Yep. Now, now this is what I'm, I mean, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. Like yeah. when you weaponize a delusion as something like ISIS has, yeah. and people are now willing to kill for that delusion, um, how do you, it seems like a lot of the tools that are in your toolkit for making sense of these people, it, it runs into a problem because they don't have to be psychopaths or psychotics. Yeah. So what? Well, I mean, you've answered the question, right? They, they, they're delusional. It's just we. So if you look at what a, the definition of a delusion is in the DSM, you read it. It really sounds like religion, albeit given like a certain degree of religious conviction. So I think it's like the strongest degree on Dawkins's scale. Uh, but the definition of a delusion is like when pre presented with evidence to the contrary, like just cannot completely. They, they cannot change it. So, like, if someone's a creationist, I would say we're being polite in saying that they're not delusional because you can show them all this tangible evidence from all kinds of different fields as to why they're wrong, and they find a way to rationalize that again. But because it's um, socially taught, like, permitted, even encouraged, uh, that person, you can be a creationist, and that was, like, that was the person was saying here, we, we might say like, well, yeah, I don't really agree with that. Like we can have a conversation about it if you want. I can tell you why I think you're wrong, but I'm not going to see that person as a threat. I'm not going to think, well, this guy's likely to pull out a, you know, a knife anytime soon and kill me over mm -hmm. what he's talking about. But if there's a guy, you know, here and with us and he's saying, you know, I see the black king in all his glory in, in the corner. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and I want you to know, John, that he loves you. <laughs> Then yeah. we're like, Black King, what is he talking about? This is so abstract. I can't. It, it takes on a more slender man like quality, right? Yeah. Rather than like the familiar, oh, yeah, and, you know, glowing Jesus at Christmas and that, that shit. It's, it's more strange. It's more like horror movie in its aesthetics. So we go, okay, <laughs> this guy here, watch out for. But you know what? Probably um, more of the time in the history of the world, it's the guy who has the same strength of delusion and it's uh, socially either permitted or endorsed. Mm -hmm. And that could be a delusion, which is also um, kind of non-metaphysical, metaphysical, so like a secular ideology. 
um, you know, national socialism, socialism, um, fucking, and I could go on and on and on, mm-hmm. right? Or then you have like something like ISIS, the, the pol- political and the religious are, are basically fused. I mean, this is the whole point. It's no, um, Muhammad said that we, you know, he showed us by example that we are to have a caliphate and he, this is how it's to be run. It says so in the book, mm-hmm. right? If the book is the Quran, that's, that's an okay belief to have as far as like being sane. But if I'm sitting there and put, pointing at the catcher in the rye, you're like, oh, right. But the, but the delusion can be catchy. I mean, cause one of the, for instance, one of the things that uh, they talk about in that podcast caliphate is they, uh, because ISIS is trying to recreate this sort of mythological um, perfect Islam that existed in the in the centuries yeah. just after the, the time of the prophet that uh, there was slavery in that time and so they 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 brought back yeah. slavery and they brought back sex slaves and all this stuff and so they would go on raids to and they had you know ways of rationalizing it and yeah. you know they talk about it and so they would steal these girls like 11 years old 12 years old and rape them and just sort of trade them around like 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 baseball cards or something like that and these girls when they were liberated from isis you hear how they are so completely brainwashed they've got such intense stockholm syndrome that they are like telling their liberators oh the men who raped me they were my they were my husbands they were martyrs they were good holy people and they would pray before they would do what they did to me and all this stuff and they're totally and so they have to go through this kind of deprogramming Right. And that what that indicates to me, because I've been I have a lifelong fascination with these kinds of things. It indicates to me that um, part of the you might say the software of the human animal is that we are very easily susceptible to to kind of these kinds of collective delusions. Mm -hmm. Right. And that it seems to me that that is if you want to talk about like murder and mass murder and atrocities, yeah. uh, you have to somehow get a handle on how that is done. And I, that's a handle I don't have. I mean, I can see that it's happening, but I don't, I mean, also, have you seen the, um, uh, the, the Ken Burns documentary series that's on Netflix? It's uh, Vietnam. You know what? I love Ken Burns. I just haven't had time for you that. Haven't, partic- you haven't seen that? Not, okay. not for that particular it's series. It's really, really worth it. Yeah. I, I would say it's his best. It's better than the Civil War series. It's better than the one mm. on Facebook. It's better than any of it. It's so, so good. But it is no holds barred. I mean, it's like your podcast. I mean, yeah. It comes with a lot of trigger warnings. Like, you know, not for the faint of fire. But they, <laughs> uh, they talk in detail about the massacres. And they interview all these soldiers later on and they talk very openly about going into villages and completely like slaughtering old old men and old women and like killing babies and like raping like you know girls and stuff they talk about these american like soldiers they talk about this and these are people who had no prior history of mental illness no prior history of violence whatsoever and they went into this situation did horrible, horrible things, and then they come back to the United States, and for the most part, they don't ever hurt anybody again, right? 
So, and there's, there's this one, um, yeah. there's this one like Vietnam vet who's on there. Who's absolutely amazing. And I, I can't remember, I think he's with the Marines, uh, but he, he's very, he's a very wise presence throughout the series, but he says, you know, they say that war takes good boys and turns them into killers. And he says, uh, no, <laughs> he's like, we got to the top of the food chain as a species because we are a very, very violent species. And he said, uh, war doesn't, uh, how do you put it? War doesn't teach, uh, teach boys how to be killers wars uh, just finish just finishing school yeah it's like sort of channels it directly. Yeah, it. yeah it's like it's all right there and when you're in the situation um all of these these sort of mechanisms that are in play um are kicked into are, are kicked in and you you find that you are very very readily able to do these kinds of intensely violent things so at that point you know to circle mm. back to my original question to you if you can take these nice boys from Nebraska, you know, these virgins from like Nebraska, yeah. little like, you know, altar boys from Philadelphia, if you can turn them into killers very, very quickly, then what is the difference between you and me and a serial killer? Oh, okay. This is like eight levels of questions <laughs> on that one, John. I was thinking yeah. all my points through on the way and then, <laughs> then it's like you did yeah, a twist. Right. <laughs> Okay, what's the difference between them and a serial killer? Um, maybe neurological things. So uh, we all have these primitive impulses kind of like pulsing at the back of our brain. Like I know I definitely have little violent tendencies here or there. Like when I'm out in Toronto, I'm surrounded by people and they're just not looking at their phones and my head starts forming these narratives. Like, you know, things that like if you if you could hear them, you would hate me, to th right? <laughs> and... Um, and just like amazing like oh just walk in front of me and then my my i see my i see myself like just pushing them in front of the train going whoops sorry you know because they said sorry or something when they did some <laughs> right i'm saying that like i think that we we have all these uh impulses in us but uh first of all that we have something to lose so we have some stake it's not sexualized like the, the, the sexual compulsion part of like most serial killers there's always outliers we're talking about serial killers it's a very broad definition now but what you typically think of as a sex um, as a serial killer is a sexual serial killer right and they've uh, so this is just something that it's such a unique factor in itself so from a young age just imagine for whatever reason you could say oh neglect did it or bullying did it and like but at some point they start fantasizing about uh, doing things to other people that has to result in their death or the point is that it results in their death or, you know, so torturing people or having sex with their corpse, or chopping them up, take your pick, all these things. And they start jerking off to it. Now think about like how strong that sexual impulse was when, you know, you first hit puberty. It was mm -hmm. like, whoa, it's like my, my fantasy scape was in such, it was in like high definition, right? It was everything was good to go and so that's where you're like start to kind of code your sexuality but they code it that way or like a, yeah. a woman's tied up or whatever and maybe that's you know one of the things i talk about a lot is maybe back in the day 
the only time they could see some, you know, uh, TNA is to get a hold of a detective magazine where a woman's bound up and looking horrified, and that's what they're wanking to because that's all they got. Like I'm, sh- I'm sure you came from you came from that era when porn wasn't just like a down a click. Oh away. no, no, it was magazines. It was like yeah, you yeah, had to it was kind like of seek it. Magazines. It was like not yeah. that, like swank and like all those. You know, all the, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, no, it was. But but one of the things that you deal with this in your books a lot. But I, I know in the notes, you know, in your your books, I've, I've often written. I need to ask Lee about this, yeah. but I've never asked you is I I know that uh, from teaching thousands of students and talking to them about issues like this and just talking to friends and things like that over the years and reading that. In most people, and you know, I'm I'm pretty typical in this respect. Most people, their desire for uh, for food, desire for sex, and then sort of capacity for violence, those are quite compartmentalized, right? So mm. most people, if they're really, uh, if they're like incredibly angry, like when I've been, um, you know, when I was younger, if I, you know, I've been in like bar fights or been in like a, you know, something like that. At that moment, when I'm in that incredibly like angry, violent mode, the last thing I'm thinking of is eating or fucking. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not no, thinking about no, sex at all. No. And when I'm thinking about when I'm hungry, I'm not thinking about like violence or sex. And it, so those things are compart. So it always yeah. amazes me when you have to me that there's some people that somehow the wires seem to get crossed yeah and like i can't even imagine after getting into uh after getting into like a, a fist fight or getting into a really big it doesn't even have to be a fist fight getting into a really horrible argument i that is a, a incredible turnoff to me yeah. Like I would be completely I like on I don't know, man. You know, like, Sometimes you get in a really bad argument with your old lady and then the next thing you know <laughs> you're having like this sort of fucking the, like sorry the makeup fuck. the makeup. Like, yeah. Yes, but that's when it's been resolved. Yeah. That's when I'm it's good over. At re- I'm good at resolving them. <laughs> that's when it's been resolved. <laughs> no, that's very normal primate yeah. behavior. But it's interesting to me that people somehow the the wires get crossed. I mean, I guess that's just part of like yeah, the, well, fast- the brain. Yeah. It's like literally organically. So my friend, Peter Vronsky, I uh, just put out a book called sons of Cain. He, he talks about, you know, how the various stages of our brain, this idea of the, the triune brain, I believe it's called. So we have like obviously the reptile brain and then the proto mammalian and then the neo mammalian. Does that sort of jive with what you know about? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's rough. It's, it's one way of sort of compartmentalizing what our different processes are. Yeah, right. And so he just thinks that we all have this like dormant in our genes, like we killed and raped the Neanderthals, you know, to extinction. And we would have had been raping and cannibalizing and stuff all the time, you know, that we really weren't these, it's not, it's the opposite of the noble savage, obviously. And it's just like, as we go forward our, and our brains become more complex, we become more socialized. We've learned to restrict those things, which lay dormant to different extents in all our genes. Um, but with a serial killer or a mass murderer or someone like that, it's like the levels of the brain, you know, there's some wiring problem where the spark, sparks fire weird. And all of a sudden, like the idea, you know, the desire to eat and the desire to be violent, which I mean, 
uh, God, this sounds horrible. I sound like a post-structuralist or something, but like <laughs> eating is violence. You know what I mean? Like um, you're destroying something. And, you know, like, so how, how far away are those in the brain? Like are those impulses and, and sex too, right? Yeah. You know, and, and that, so the, maybe the brain can just fire weird in these people and there's like this primal thrust towards it. But I don't think he would argue that that's the genesis of all serial killers, just a certain type, perhaps like more, maybe more the disorganized type of ones that like highly impulsive bite your bite you and, you know, spend very little time with the victims, those kinds. And then maybe the kind of coding I was talking about before, the coding of the sexuality, maybe more for like the more organized ones with these elaborate fantasies. So do you know who BTK is? Sure, yeah. Okay, so like that guy had such a specific thing that he wanted that it was it was, it was not primal. Like it, it wasn't a misfiring of the brain, not in the way that we were just talking about at least. But it was like he wanted a woman tied up and he wanted her tied up in this exact specific way, which mirrored his fantasy. And he didn't even have to rape them. He just had to kill them and then set them up like that. And then he just wanked because the pictures kind of matched. But they don't always match perfectly. Right. Mm. So maybe next time I'll make it better. But uh, so throwing a lot of ideas around here. Sorry, John, I'm trying to keep yeah, it organized. Yeah. But I'm saying that like I think that that's a type. Yeah. And, those, and those ones too may also have you know, probably do have some sort of uh, neuroscience problem, problem, but there's a different in, in the more disorganized ones, what we're talking about there, like a firing from the past, like a burst of the old caveman just comes through. And, and because that's dormant in all of us, maybe it's like when we go to war, that comes out. I've had this discussion before. Like it's, I find it really interesting to talk to other guys about um, fights they had, but not for like ego reasons. I think like at a certain age you're just past that, right? <laughs> but like like the yeah. actual experience of mm-hmm. it, right? And like um, so one time, I was fighting a bunch of guys, dude. I I, I had to had to do what I had to do. I got, I got on top of one of them. At one point, I just decided I was just. But okay, that's that's wrong because I didn't decide. It's like I had pre-programmed this as like a, 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 a possible strategy. And I just reached out. I grabbed his nose and I just torqued it as hard as I could. Mm-hmm. Like basically, I believe the impulse was like break his nose. It'll fuck up his senses. But I didn't think to do it. I just in that amazing situation, which you can't really until you've been in it, you can't really know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw myself do that. And I've done other things like that too, where like, I'm not even really in control. It's, it's some other part of me. And that comes out when, when you you're in a fight, like when you're in a serious fight, not like, mm. not, you know, not like a, not like a hockey fight or something. I'm talking like something where someone could, could die. Too, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've, a lot of my former students are, are, police officers and yeah. I, and they've told me these stories uh, you know I've heard so many stories from them about what happens when you're in a really kind of crazy situation where somebody's like hitting you and attacking you or when you're chasing after somebody and your adrenaline gets pumping and I say like when you're in that situation yeah you are you're something kicks in that is so primal yeah. oh yeah you're on autopilot yeah and so when you see people yeah. um you know on these like cell phone videos where cops are like choking people to death or like shooting doing stuff like 
you are almost always seeing a police officer who is in an incredibly primal state. Yes. They've, they're so jacked on adrenaline. And they said, so basically, the the people who are, are really good, like really amazing law enforcement um, officers, they are people who, through a lot of training, they are able to counteract yeah. those things. And they know how to like stop it. And so for instance, like I saw, this is kind of a, a minor example of this, but uh, Annalise and I had a party sorry, a number of years ago. It must've been like about 10 years ago. We had a party and, uh, oh God, we, we had this, we've since, we, we cut her out of our life very quickly after, but uh, there was this, uh, this woman that we met through, through a mutual friend and she was kind of a sketchy, she's very interesting and fascinating, but kind of sketchy. And she had sketchy friends <laughs> and she just showed up without telling us. She showed up at one of our house parties, big house party with a bunch of like uh, these completely kind of horrible. Some of the worst people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. They were like these bike couriers. They were like all like anarchists and they were just, oh. they were the kind of people that just sort of have this huge chip on their shoulder. Like they walk into your place and they're like looking at you bourgeois scum. And like, I have a right to like steal things from you. I have a right to take things from you and to sneer at you because you're like all just like, you know, like they just made all these assumptions about people in the house. And so they just uh, came in, didn't bring anything to party started like getting completely wasted getting really grabbing women in a really disgusting oh, yeah. way and being obnoxious so finally uh after i don't know like two hours had to like just tell them you you need to leave like they, they were like literally like breaking glasses grabbing women's like boobs and stuff like that they were just disgusting right like yeah, yeah and they yeah, did yeah, all yeah. of this not in a bro way where like you know like <laughs> yeah, yeah. they were doing it in a totally like entitled way like we're better than you mm. you know because you're like this bourgeois scum who's like and like all that it was really horrible but um anyway so we and one of the guys was getting very very violent and he was like taking swings at people and stuff like that and he had like a like a bottle in his hand like this so and probably for the only time in my entire life at the age of 35, I called the police no. to my, you know, I've had the police called to my parties yeah. plenty of times because yeah, yeah. uh, they were too loud. But this, I actually called the police to my, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so the police showed up and the police officer who dealt with this guy was a seasoned pro. He had gray hair. He looked like he was in kind of, I would guess, like late 40s, early 50s. And this guy was like a Zen master. He was like a yeah, ninja man. master. And this guy would yell insults at him and be really, really, and he would just like, like sensei, you know, like like, like the sensei in karate Well, because he knows he's going to win the fight. And That's he a would, big part he of just, it. He could not, he was yeah. like a total stoic. Like he could not get a response out of him. Yeah. And he kept trying to talk him down and calm him down and calm him down. And when the guy finally like took a swing at him, he like boom, like put him down. Ass. But he completely was calm through the entire thing. Yeah. And and the two other officers that were there were young guys, uh, a young young woman and a young guy. 
and they were like not far out of like the police academy kind of thing and they were just looking at this guy yeah. like he was a god and they're like you know if i was in that situation and he was getting that my adrenaline would come up and i would have like hit him who knows what i might have done yeah, yeah, and yeah. so it, it gave me like an insight that you know what you're talking about that like the um people who are trained in this stuff they seem to know how to like you, you're talking about the try and you know, like brain right yeah. they, they seem to know how to really foreground the prefrontal cortex yeah. that's involved in in kind of inhibiting impulses and inhibiting that reptile brain and stuff like that oh and some of them it's like they can just they can just open and close it so like um some of the people I have the greatest respect for in the in the world are mixed martial artists oh, i was just like oh. you know that that argument of i'm tougher than you or your dad can beat up my dad or whatever the fuck it was <laughs> where, <laughs> yeah was um, yeah. It, you can settle that now go ahead go prove it yeah go settle it and then there's people that do and then they get to the top and you see most of the time they have very strong self-control they yeah. need that to have the self-discipline to go and train sebastian and, and got to, me into mma as well. oh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh i could i could wreck my life trying to follow it i love it i yeah. absolutely do <laughs> yeah it's like yeah it's it's amazing the yeah, and you watch it, you know, he got me into it. And, like, you watch these people, and they're just wailing, like, beating the fuck out of each other. Yeah. And then they suddenly, at the end, like, hug each other and, like, hey, man, good fuck. And you're like, what? Yeah. Like, it's, it, they just can completely switch it off and suddenly are, like, talking about this. And, you know, there's one guy, I can't remember his name, who is not like that, who's, like, a little bitch at the end of there's a fight. There's a few of them. He's, like, a, yeah. he, he's like really kind of like snooty after and he sticks out like a sore thumb because he's not like the rest of them. Is it Nick mm. Diaz or Nick Diaz? Uh, no, it was, no, I can't Dino, remember who Diaz's it is. are fun. The yeah. Diaz's are like pot smoking. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> UFC's full of everyone on you know, steroids, bro. Everyone on steroids. You know what I mean? This shit like that. And then, uh, yeah, that's the Diaz's. Yeah. No, but he, like <laughs> when you yeah. see the, the people who, kind of uh, are not able to do that it's kind of it's kind of fascinating right so yeah but that's that's switching it on and off and i mean i'm sure you've you've heard i mean you talk about this in your uh, number of your podcast episodes how uh sometimes people can have uh brain either brain damage or they can have yeah, yeah. brain like tumors which inhibit the functioning of their prefrontal cortex mm -hmm. and these things come out yeah. In people that are, you know, unbelievable. I mean, there's a, the famous case. I can't remember his name. He, um, Jonathan Haidt talks about him in the happiness hypothesis. So this guy was a, a school teacher. I think he's taught like high school and completely normal, like mm -hmm. middle-aged guy. And suddenly he just started, um, he started like getting really into like, child pornography surfing the internet for child pornography all the time he started oh, right. propositioning yeah, yeah. his students he started doing like he was just compulsively hitting on every woman around uh, without any regard for their age or anything like yeah. that and he got in his wife like kicked him out of the house he lost his job 
uh, and he got in trouble with the authorities like pretty soon. And so when they were taking him to, I think like the narrative was something like just before his sentencing, he collapsed and had like a major seizure. They took him into the hospital. Turned out he had a massive tumor, brain tumor, which was putting a huge amount of pressure yeah. on his prefrontal uh, cortex. So they operated, they removed the entire tumor. As soon as they removed the tumor, he no longer had any of these behaviors. They were all gone, right? So it, uh, but then yeah. eventually, like about a, like a year later, the behaviors came back. Sure enough, he had another huge tumor in his brain. So the, there's a number of cases like this, mm. and what they seem to indicate is that that reptilian brain that we have that's at the core is is an asshole like okay yeah. and like the prefrontal cortex its main job is to repress some really really ugly tendencies what we have down in us is like cthulhu <laughs> and cthulhu is sleeping and that part of the brain the prefrontal cortex and some other parts are gates and they keep cthulhu at bay but when if, if the gate gets broken Cthulhu comes and people get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's amazing. And you can also see not just with brain tumors, you can see there's there's certain drugs uh, people, obviously alcoholics who, you know, people who drink excessively, but also certain drugs like specifically um, crystal meth. Um, there's a, a few of them that specifically if if like prolonged use. Yeah they inhibit the prefrontal cortex mm -hmm. and you see these kind of meth heads and they will do unbelievable things. I mean, they will like stab their own like kids. They will like, you know, yeah. rape like, like little kids. They'll, they'll do all these like completely crazy things. Um, and it, it seems to be because they are sort of flicking off the switches in their, prefrontal cortex and, a lot of them have you... delusions too right yeah i've heard of a lot of cases like that like all these meth heads like and you know made this kid drink bleach because they thought the devil was in her and they wanted to purify it from her so it also it can yeah. lead to psychosis that's true and, but then like i mean it's just basically like you're just rotting every part of your brain right i mean it's just a bad idea yeah but but like let's even dial it in like this shit here man alcohol um isn't been involved in I don't know the past two incidences of violence I was involved in, which thankfully were quite a while ago. But um, this is in sixty six percent of homicides. Really, this is involved. Yeah, oh, man. Let's drink to that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sixty six percent of homicide. Yeah. So I wonder in in countries where they where alcohol is illegal, like Saudi Arabia or like like. What do they have like practically no murders like this? Uh, or what would be no, involved? I no, I, I mean, I think the murder rate in Saudi Arabia is reasonable. Like, I think more of that about the state killing. I guess I can't call it murder because it's not illegal for them. Right. But I think more of them as like a state that kills. I don't think of them as a crime society. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the statistics aren't comparable. We don't know. Yeah. And. How much yeah, would you that's, trust That's them? interesting because that's I know um, Steven Pinker in his book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Yeah. He talks about um, when violence 
is present. He says he talks about alcohol. He talks about um, drugs. He talks about, you know, various kinds of right. So in a place like. Okay, you've I mean, obviously, you know about sort of murder all over all over the place, but you've studied Canada uh, and the States. I'd a say lot, killing more broadly. Right? Yeah, I'm starting to learn more about killing. It's killing. It's a different, more it's a different <laughs> idea. Different. So what yeah. is it? What are the big differences? We have a lot of listeners uh, from the United States and, and Canada. Great. So what would you say are the, the big differences between murder in Canada, killing in Canada and killing in the United States? Oh. Or are there differences? Uh, so we're we talking about killing like from a legal perspective or cultural or I it's mean, like what, what happens? Is it, is it the same? Well, obviously there's uh, less. Okay. Here's the big difference. We don't have this mass stranger directed gun violence. You know, we've had little hints about it recently, but we typically don't have incidents where incidences where guys go out in public with a gun and just start shooting strangers for no reason. We have, you know, a few workplace incidents like that, but compared to the States, like that's a massive difference. And I don't know, like, what do you attribute that to? That's that's a question we could waste our time on a lot, right? Let's just acknowledge that that's a difference. Yeah. Um, no, because the thing is, because yeah. Steven Pinker says that even if you remove all of the guns. Let's say you just take guns out of the equ equation completely. He says that Americans kill each other with knives, baseball bats, uh, with other means, like aside from way more than anybody else in the Western world. So that the problem, the problem, you know, guns are clearly a problem, but to say that guns are the only problem. Yeah. No, he said it, it's, um, it's a violent society. Yeah, it's a culture, right? There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of just traditional, don't cross my fucking boundaries going on there, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, like you said, there's there's drugs and alcohol as as issues which which stress that, and you know, economic issues, and so when it it just runs through a different sort of filter, I think, and you know, obviously there's the the fallout of, of slavery still that, you know, it's sad to say, I can't believe we're still saying it, that, that they're, they're dealing with over there. However you want to con conceive of it, it's still it's clearly still a problem there. And um, I mean, the interesting thing is that these gun crimes, they're suburban crimes, right? But the inner city crimes are more like turf crimes. They're more like tribal. So I get it to see that like, sometimes it's like those guys get to play out their manhood in quicker time. So, you know what I mean? Like they're being tested all the time and they're having to win and, you know, they're having, you know, they're not going to hope the girl falls in love with them. They're going to like, they're going to, you know, pursue her and, and make that girl like him. And that's that culture there, right? That's a sort of like the honor oh, and shame culture. Yeah. 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 Um, whereas in, in the, uh, the suburbs, you know, there's this sort of, uh, it's like men are more, their masculinity is more tempered or not tested at the same rate or as much, but still like put under pressure. And so they don't have, they build, they don't build the same resilience. So like in the inner cities, I think that that violent masculinity is just like, a, it's just a part of the culture. It's part of the vernacular. It's how you speak socially, you know, through your actions. Um, whereas in the suburbs, it's just like, yeah. 
you know there's a and then at some point the pock just blows and some kid goes ape shit and yeah he's like i wanted to play too you know right and but really i think that's it and it's like you know in the inner cities everyone's playing you don't have a fucking choice yeah you're shuffled right into the game right immediately and yeah and then the violence sort of violence out in the country um i think that i'm I couldn't. I shouldn't comment on that. I think that one I have more of a stereotype about, but the, it could have a lot of the same problems as the inner city, as as far as like the sort of tribalism and drugs and stuff. You know, this happens in a redneck kind of way. Yeah. Well, in in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers, he talks about uh, the the whole thesis that there's um, you know the the Scotch Irish that they lived <laughs> in very like rural areas and their culture was sort of brought over to certain parts of the American South and the, the kind of what we think of as like hillbillies, like in the kind of yeah. poor, like poor kind of, they were not slave owners. They were sort of poor farmers and that they brought over from, um, from the, from Europe, this particular culture where you, you have populations that are very, very dispersed. And by the way, this is not just a Scotch-Irish thing. You can find exactly the same thing in Afghanistan and a number, a number of places. Okay. So it's where you have herders and they have oh, a yeah, huge, yeah. they have like yeah. huge kind of like, they need a lot of land in order to survive. And you, whatever the, the Leviathan, right? The state is far away mm-hmm. and weak. And so you can't rely on the state to give you law and order. You have to rely on yourself. And so you need people to know that you are like a total fucking badass and that you oh, will yeah. avenge a slight. <laughs> yeah. the, if you kill one of my like my sheep or something like that, I will chase you for hundreds of miles to kill you. And if I don't kill you, my brothers will kill you. And if my brothers don't kill you, my cousins will kill you 10 years from now. So you want a reputation for being somebody that that responds to slights in a very very intense way and that's how you actually defend your territory it's an evolutionary mechanism yeah exactly yeah so that and he he says that this is uh these are sort of brain modules you might say that are kicked in by certain cultures certain cultures kind of if you learn this um, those modules will be kicked in. And so he gives, uh, in, in Outliers, he gives that amazing example of a, a test where they have, like, somebody who grew up, this, like, uh, white guy who grew up in, like, rural Texas, and they have, like, a, a black guy who grew up in, like, like a, an urban, like an inner city ghetto. Yep. And both of them, when somebody like a in a this like social psychology test when some of them somebody walks by them and like bumps into them yeah their cortisol levels go really really high like they yeah. immediately get very 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 violent and like thinking very very stressed and yeah. very kind of and they stay that way for about 45 minutes after the incident whereas somebody who's grown up in like you know in like Manhattan, yeah, you know, or like growing up in like a, or, or Boston in the middle, not, not South Boston, but like growing up in like kind of a civilized kind of big city. Yeah. If somebody bumps into them, 
it doesn't have any effect on the they immediately assume it was an accident and go on with their life or even if they don't assume it's an accident the rationalization process kicks in because like we shouldn't get violent like in yeah, got all this shit to risk. Exactly, because right? there's no the, the honor part doesn't mean as much, and so I'm, I'm just while it's in my mind. Okay, yeah. I, and if we're gonna talk about politics, I just want to talk about them like without without bringing in our personal values to them. I just I'm bored of it. I don't think it's appropriate. But you're saying these guys went to the south, right? So when Donald Trump tweets, you know, we will rain fire down on your nation or whatever it was that he said to North Korea. A lot of those people, that's what they would say. That's the way they handle it. That's why they like, you know, to some degree, Donald Trump. Like a lot of people looked at that and they went, holy shit, he's, he's off the chain. <laughs> For me, I just saw what I was like, well, and that's because I'm not Scots-Irish. Like I'm not dudes Southern. talking but, shit. Well, yeah, man. It was just sort of like, for me, it was like, I do that shit all the time. I do it by accident. Sometimes I just give someone a look like, you know, and. <laughs> it's just like dudes talking shit. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, is if you come from a dignity culture, uh, which is a whole like a kind of a civilized dignity culture, then it's a different thing because in that culture, you want to diffuse things as much as possible. And you only use force as a last resort. And so if you if you have somebody who comes from a kind of a talking shit culture, right? Yeah. And somebody who comes from a dignity culture, they're going to be speaking a different language because the person. And so you can see this like Barack Obama, right? Like he comes from a total kind of dignity culture. And so he's not going to say, I'm going to rain down fire on you unless he plans on actually doing it three hours later. So that'd so be a terrible strategy. He, uh, he would, you know, it's sort of like don't uh, don't kind of talk shit unless you're willing to like follow it up with something quickly after. Whereas Donald Trump seems to come from a different kind of kind of sort of a New York, uh, you know, real estate kind of Wall Street kind of like where people are just swearing all the time and talking shit. And yeah. there there are a lot of they're like cats. You know, you see like cats in an alleyway. They're like. Argh! They like mm. they freak out, but they like barely ever come to blows. And mm. if they do, it's very brief and there's like practically nothing. So they're basically a lot of talk and very, very little action. And a lot of it is just like posturing. And it's almost like like yeah. people in a rap battle, like I'm a fucking I'm so amazing. I'm a, like, I'm so amazing. And then like you both like doing this, but yeah. you never actually come to blows like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like the chimp dance, right? We, the, a lot of times chimps, they have these ceremonial battles and, and, and one tribe backs down from the other. It's it's just sort of like a cultural reskinning of that, <laughs> that chimp yeah. thing, right? Um, so, but yeah, it's a different way of, of being because like I see that Trump says something like that because like he would follow through, but he's just making real fucking clear that you know that. You know, that's honestly what I, I felt. It was. I just thought like that's something I would do. I would do that. I don't have a problem with someone saying that they're in a rain down fire in a country, which is clearly testing them. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have like, just a reminder. We can do this. Um, but what scares me more is you said like that you thought Obama would announce it and then do it. No, I'm just saying <laughs> I'm just saying that there's um, there's different kinds of. Yeah. You know, there's different ways of like having different relationships between the your boasting 
and your comments oh, and your versus like versus through. what you're actually going to do. And this can play out in different ways. Like, for instance, growing up in Canada. Yeah, I see what you mean now. Sorry. I was yeah. totally used to um, a certain there's a certain kind of bar, you know, the kind of those like those bro bars on Bishop and Crescent and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, right? for sure, man. Or in or in Ontario yeah. where like you, people, they get towards like a certain time of night and like. You know, you bump into somebody by accident on the way to the bathroom. They're like, well, you want to go? You know, like, <laughs> and they like and they're like so pumped up on like testosterone and they like and they're drunk and they want to like they want to fight with somebody. Right. So, yeah. Well, when I moved down to Baltimore, I I went out to like a lot of like uh, mainly at first when I got there, I went out to like a lot of hip hop clubs. Right. Oh, yeah. And so I would, like fun. I would. Yeah, it was yeah. like it was a lot of fun. It was like phenomenal, phenomenal music. And yeah. And but I one of the things I was really, really surprised about that was a big cultural difference between um, my experience in Canada versus in Baltimore was in Baltimore. I would bump into like by accident because I'm, you know, whatever, drunk at some like, club and like, yeah, yeah. you know, like one thirty in the morning and I'd bump into like some guy who's like a wall. You know, this guy's like six four and like a, he takes up a doorway, like this massive, massive guy. And I bumped bump it by accident. And the guy would turn to me and would be incredibly sweet and very, very polite and be like, hey, man, you yeah. okay? And be like, hey, you okay? Yeah. Like, yeah, sorry, man. I was just like, you know, he's like, you having a good time? I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Have yeah. a good night. And this happened once, twice, again, and again. And I noticed like some weird things that at three o'clock in the morning when the bars let out here, you know, right? Well, at least at the English bars, there's like fist fights and stuff like that. And yeah. Bishop and Crescent, uh -huh. it's like a normal thing. Fist fights break up on the, they break out on the, on the dance floor and then outside afterwards. Well, one thing I noticed in Baltimore, no fist fights. There were absolutely no fist fights at closing time. Because everyone's packing, John. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So people don't talk shit oh. they don't pick a fight with somebody randomly because it doesn't matter if the guy's like five four and 120 pounds he could have like a hand cannon inside his like jacket so you don't talk shit unless you're ready to actually do something yeah right and so you you are people in a in a subtle interaction where you bump into somebody you smooth that shit over like really really quickly because there's no reason to make an enemy with a stranger and so it's it's interesting how in that context, uh, somebody like Donald Trump seems more like a kind of a, a drunk Canadian. After, like, <laughs> like he just like says these incredibly inflammatory things uh, without realizing that actually words can have. I mean, this is a guy, as as yeah. all of his biographers say, this is a guy who's actually a complete chicken shit wimp who's never been in a fistfight in his entire life. Right. This is what his all of his biographies say. He talks really, really tough. Right. Like, I mean, you and I have actually been in like fist fights. We've been in like fights before. Yeah. I've I, had, I, like, just clarify, most of my fingers have been not, broken. Not like, for years. Yeah. No, not for years yeah. either. But here, too. But like um, he is a the classic chicken hawk. Yeah. He's somebody who talks a lot of shit and has never actually had. He's never had a fist fight in his entire life. So well, it worries either. It worries <laughs> it worries me that you have somebody who is the most powerful person in the world who talks 
a really good game and has no conception of what that kind of talk can lead to. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you, if you conceived of Trump that way, yeah, that's, that's a different way than the way that I sort of argued it. But I guess, but just to sort of scale it back is the, the point is that's what he's trying to do, right? Like whether he's can follow through with it or not, it's the same thing as like the, the, the don't fuck with me. Look, Ice-T talked about that on a, t- on, a, <laughs> on a TED talk. No, it was great, man. He was in a prison and he was talking to police and officers and he said, see this look I have on my face. Like I'm not doing that. It's not something that I'm i'm uh consciously doing he says but you you know people say ice you look pissed off he's like yeah because where i grew up i had to look like that so i was grimace i wasn't constantly like getting in fights because people would have to look would look at you and they'd go oh fuck uh yeah probably not mess with this guy mm-hmm. right and so it's just a strategy of uh of dealing with conflict that somehow you know is in these these shepherd cultures which you talked about but then somehow ends up in donald <laughs> trump too so yeah yeah but uh and i don't know he's he's probably close enough to the ground he's sort of new rich like what they're like two generations in rich oh no no they've been very very rich for a long time oh yeah he so, he acts, so his grandfather acts, was rich he 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 pretends yeah. to be uh like he's like he's a redneck or he's like in touch with working class culture but uh, anytime he actually touches working class culture, I'm sure he goes and washes his hands right afterwards. I mean, he's uh, he's like a complete, complete phony on that score. Uh. Like he's been he's brought up. And that's what that's what sort of worries me. Right. Because I think the people uh, for whom his rhetoric resonates most are not phony. <laughs> like, no, they're not phony at all. No, like they actually are willing to. Uh, to sort of back this up with with force very willingly. Yeah. There's a. Yeah, yeah, do you yeah. watch that show Homeland? But he speaks for them. You see. Do you, do you watch that show Homeland <laughs> at uh, all? No, I don't. Okay. Well, there's uh, a. Yeah. You know, I I really like the show, and there's this one character on the show that is just very very clearly based on Alex Jones. <laughs> I mean, it's just like uh, it's so thinly veiled, it's almost funny. Like, and on the show. He whips up millions and millions of Americans into this frenzy. He has like a TV show and podcast, and he's on social media. He said, "We have to fight the government and the deep state." And and he always and he's a big like gun right activist yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. guy. Well, you find out that this guy is actually just um, a total phony. He's never fired a gun in his life, but suddenly he realizes. The government, like, they, he gets kicked off of all social media. This happened on the show, like, yeah, a year it's, before it's it happened Jones. in real life, yeah, yeah. right? Before it actually happened in real life. And he meets all these, like, survivalists in, like, in, you know, rural Virginia and rural, like, and, you know, there's, like, young guys that have his face, like, tattooed on their arms. And they have, like, tons and tons of guns and weapons, and they're waiting to go to war against the government. In, and he's like their messiah no. and you can see this like look on his face where he's like oh my god yeah. i had no i didn't realize people were actually like taking me seriously to this extent and there's eventually well a number of things happen but there's at one point there's a, a huge firefight between a bunch of these like survivalists that he's inspired and the fbi and a bunch of kids are killed a lot of like women are killed and stuff like that. All these like, 
and you see this Alex Jones character kind of looking at all the <laughs> carnage and just going, and you can look, see the look on his face. Like he just has no idea. And that's how I imagine Donald Trump, just a complete fucking phony, yeah. like who talks all of this shit, but has never had to make difficult mm. decisions in his life, has never been in a street fight in his life. Sure. He, he's the, you know, what I call like a, a revolution hawk, right? Somebody who like, like, or a chicken out, somebody who talks like a really good game about violence and war, but has no real experience with it at all. Right. Well, and hasn't really been particularly violent as a president. That's interesting. Like that's sort of under discussed. Like, uh, I mean, it's not like he's been embarking on the real wars in Syria. He called in uh, really, really intense airstrikes in oh, then, Syria. How many people I, were killed in that in total? I'm not sure. Yeah, I thought it was something like 10 people. Really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that that was just a sign that was just like, see, I'm not with Russia. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. But as the news changes, like you're, you know, also the ability to stay on top of all this stuff is crazy. But I mean, that's not the point I, I wanted to get. And, and you know, certainly I'm, I'm not Trump. I obviously don't <laughs> like Trump, you know. Yeah. Um, but what I'm what the, what the connection I'm trying to make is I, I think we're kind of agreeing here. Oh, yeah. Trump yeah. is the voice of those people in yeah. of those shepherd people that live in those areas. And that's the way they would handle it. Trump might not handle it, but they are, they like what he says because it's what they would say. Yep. And he's oh, it's like, it's like Cornel West says, he goes like, Trump <laughs> is a gangster. Yeah. He like, he talks full on gangster and people who are really, really angry result. They, they respond to him. I mean, there are like, uh, you know, it, it's not just, sort of the white guys from like the the south you know the rural south that voted for trump there's like what is it like 13 percent of african-american men voted for trump yeah in the united states so he, there's he's resonating with because that's like, what a they lot would of people. say that's what they would say if they were dealing with <laughs> with north korea they'd be like look bitch I fu i'm gonna fuck you up i'm gonna fuck you up right that's what they would say and then trump just says it in a different way that you know yeah. white people can get yeah. to hey rocket man like, yeah yeah, like yeah and it's funny and it's amusing and yeah. i'm just like ah so I, I i i as far as like who he is as a person like i just i hear every i've got a million stories of who he is i i just think more of like his effect and and that's like what i look at with him it's like he's what they would say and like understanding that and then understanding everything we've talked about, like I'm unpacking all the way back to the caveman and the, the tribes and the and uh, different types of violence. Everything we talked about, you can just integrate here into like how we got to this this yeah. point. Right. And that explains an American political divide. That explains why for some people it's like that's completely unacceptable for that guy to say that. And for others, it's just like, yeah, my, my man, my man. <laughs> well, fuck, you fuck in, your, up, in, your, in your podcast, you talk about how. Uh, psychopaths when they can uh, a lot of them are very 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 charismatic and very slick and very charming and one of the things that makes them such they've got like you say they, they have the gift of gab right yeah. and you say one of the things that makes them so good at what they do is that they can just tap into the uh, confabulating part of the brain and they can just sort of stream of consciousness they can confabulate and so if you confront them on a lie, um, yeah. normal people, if you confront them on a lie, they'd be like, they're kind of flustered and they're embarrassed and you can tell they're kind of thrown off their game. Uh, whereas 
like somebody who's a, a psychopath. Yeah. They just, I mean, when you hear Donald Trump interviewed and he's confronted, and this is something people say in private, he's exactly the same way. Yeah. That when he's confronted on lies and he just is not in any way even like yeah. phased at all. I but, mean, is he, is he a psychopath? Well, um, they tend to see psychopathy as a spectrum. You know what I mean? And so you, I have always it's seen like him five, more as a, mar- five is of a, a narcissist. 30 is like the... I've seen him as more of a narcissist. I think if he was a psychopath, he would care to a lesser extent. But like the fact that he's constantly on Twitter and having to like defend himself and make these announcements and shit, it's like he's always trying to tell himself like nobody fucks with me. No one, you know, whereas a psychopath is off actually fucking with someone, you know, instead of t- um, tweeting about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, can he have, you know, are th- is there some connection between those things? Like, yeah, I guess you could have like a narcissism with like a certain psychopathic creep overlying it like we're talking about brain structures and pathways here you know there's a lot of room for things to overlap and fall out of neat categories and so that is yeah certainly a psychopathic trait and the thing is like most presidents are going to be higher in their psychopathy score to to some degree now the degree to which trump is most presidents yeah for sure just because of their they're successful right so they've got to have a certain ruthlessness to them right um, they've got to have, you, you, I mean, House of Cards sort of exemplifies that, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but uh, yeah, and, and I see most successful people have a slightly higher rate of psychopathy. Now, Trump, yeah, man, I think, look, uh, I'll just be objective and just give it out. And me and a friend scored Trump, and it was somewhere between 15 and, and, and 20. Uh, so nowhere near 30, which is the 30 cutoff, is the right? cutoff. But yeah. 30 is 30 is like the point where you're just like constantly committing crimes and you're just like, what, you know, as the dead kids in your hands, like, what, uh, why are you arrest- arresting me? You know, um, uh, hey, where's my shoes? Like after you take them in and you're yelling, you killed that kid. Like, that'll be their response. Like, you know, what do you guys do with my truck? <laughs> right. That's a 30 that those guys are just in, totally out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just so Detach. I don't think Trump is is quite that, but yeah, he has a lot of those traits. Um, so let's get off Trump. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. yeah. Well, I would I would like to actually finish with this, which is uh, I mean we'll we'll have to talk about this more in the future for sure. Yeah. Um, but what do you what do you think about somebody like the the Unabomber? Right. I mean, you and I both have a real interest in his his yeah. manifesto, and we're we're gonna have to talk about that in another another episode. But like. Um, this is somebody who has no prior history of of mental illness. Somebody who like is incredibly intelligent, who sort of psychs themselves up into doing all of this this violence, right? So, um, h- how do you make sense of somebody like that? Well, the Unabomber actually, I find it to be a very relatable character. Right. He's like this savant, right, as a, as a kid. And his parents are like, you know, you got to achieve, Ted, you got to achieve. They're pushing my head like two grades. That's fucking with his socialization. Do you remember I was talking to you? We were talking about that guy in Toronto. And the first thing I asked was like, well, how was he socially? Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to be bullied. But like, and so Kaczynski, he could never fit in with that. So he's already a loner with like a sort of truncated personality and a adult em- emotionality, but still with very human needs, like need to be loved and that sort of thing. I don't think he, he was by no means a psychopath. 
And uh, then he gets into, uh, I think it was Harvard he was at. Harvard or Yale? One of those two. I think he went to Harvard. Harvard. It yeah. was Harvard, yeah. yeah. And uh, the professor there um, recruits him to be like this test subject of like these mind control experiments. And this isn't bullshit. This actually happened. This is one of those ones. It's like the, it's like the Alex Jones Bohemian Grove video. Like, yeah. sorry, can't deny that one. That happened. Make of it what you will. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so uh, he was subjected to these experiments. So you have already this extremely destabilized individual, and then you throw him into academia, and he's just probably an extremely logical, detached person who who, who wants to he wants to meet people and make friends and be normal, but he can't because he doesn't have the skills, and and, and he's completely intellectual and locked inside his head, like in some ways highly competitive, but socially an island. And uh, then he comes up against things that like annoy the piss out of non uh, of people way less damaged, right? Which is you know all of this uh, what what he calls the the new leftism. This is going back to like the mid '90s, I think. So that's that's an interesting thing I want to talk about too. Is like because we talk about like identity politics, like as if it's a new thing, but the Unabomber is talking about them back then. Mm-hmm. And um, he hits that and he just feels the need for more autonomy and he feels like his life purpose is being crushed out. So he moves out into the middle of nowhere. And then I guess it's like, I don't know, the hard part is explaining why did he then start sending out bombs to all these people? That's actually the hardest part. Like, you know, the, vi- the, the, dis- the degree of the violence. Like, I get if he set off one bomb and then went like, well, I guess he had to do a couple to... to convince them that it was a good idea to print it right Mm -hmm. but it's like is that really all that was about was it just like this is a vehicle for my my message or was there some other underlying impulse like where he justifies it because he wants his revenge right because he wasn't allowed uh, he wasn't allowed in so at the same time you can like sort of sneer at him and and for that and in other times you can be empathic towards his situation um, you know, I think the whole picture is a good thing. You, you have to look at him from every angle. But like, if once you're empathic to him, you you can understand him to a degree. But there's always a little part you know you don't understand, right? <laughs> you know, there's yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, but I think if you and I went to war, uh, if we had been one of the generations that went to war, I think we probably would understand that. Yeah. Yeah, and it would be disturbing, right? But. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I yeah. really hope sometime in the next month we can uh, we can do this again, and we're going to go yeah, in a lot more soon. detail on the, on yes, the Unabomber. Let's do Unabomber. Uh, yeah, we'll but, do the whole uh, manifesto. Yeah, that'd yeah. be fantastic. All right. Okay, cheers, Thank John. you so much. It's been a, been a <laughs> slice. Thank you.